In his book, Against Empire, Michael Parenti reminds us of the origins of empires. Carving up the world has often been treated by the apologists of imperialism as a natural phenomenon involving an international specialization of production. In fact, what is distinct about imperialism is its highly unnatural quality, its repeated reliance upon armed coercion and repression. Empires do not emerge naturally and innocently in a fit of absent-mindedness, as was said by the British Empire. They are welded together with deliberate deceit, greed, and ruthless violence. They are built upon the sword, the whip, and the gun. The history of imperialism is about the enslavement and slaughter of millions of innocents, a history no less dreadful for remaining conveniently untaught in most of our schools. to ending the myth the show where we look into the dark soul of america by examining its awful history and yes we're back after six months away it's so good to be potting again with you Munya. how are you doing oh man brian i'm doing great a lot has happened since we left off my man um (laughs) in my magnanimous humility I felt we owed it to our listeners to give them time to catch up on our 25 previous episodes. We generously dropped every single week, each one, a banger. In a more Machiavellian sense, our listeners had it too good for too long. A little pause in releasing episodes just had them begging for more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, if absence makes the heart grow fond, then we have reached the next level of indoctrination with our listeners, converting their enjoyment of the show into an urgent need for more episodes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mooney, it's great to hear they're doing well. Uh, I hear that you might have done some on the ground research during our break as well. Yeah, man, I uh, used our Patreon dollars to fly over to um, Memphis and like see the um, urban decline there. Um, That was like very (laughs) interesting. You know, like we have some good episodes coming up on that. Uh, Went to Morocco and Northern Italy. Um, You know, it's more of a on the ground uh, experience, not necessarily on any of the countries we're really covering, but, um, you know, nonetheless, I think it really gave me some great insight. And to get a real uh, view of it, I went on a hot air balloon to in the Sahara to like kind of see mm-hmm. the overall yeah. landscape. And As I think I'm, re- I'm really coming back, uh, you know, with something great, uh, you know, after those experiences. Yeah, I, I could just picture you walking across the sands of Morocco, telling your entourage uh, stories of how in a previous life you were one of Hannibal's soldiers leading yeah. the elephants <laughs> to Rome. <laughs> the battlefield was here. The Carthaginians defending the city 
were attacked by three Roman legions 2,000 years ago. I was here. Uh, that all sounds great. All right. And international travel, it's going to tie in nicely to what we have to talk about, which, ooh, we got a bit of a long one. And uh, I hate to say it, unlike all the previous episodes lead up to this point, maybe a little dark, too. Yeah, maybe just a bit. Uh, we're jumping back into it and discussing the global Cold War. Previously, in episode 17... We discussed the role that the Cold War played in disciplining the American working class at home. A Red Scare was launched in the wake of World War II that would be remembered under the name McCarthyism, but which extended well beyond the actions of the House Un-American Activities Committee. The new anti-communist zealotry permeated every layer of American culture, from the unions to the workplace, from the universities to the church. It took over Hollywood and shaped the art world. In short, anti-communism became America's national religion. Internationally, mass politics proved much more difficult to shape. The West wanted the world to believe that European socialist states were behind an iron curtain, as Winston Churchill memorably put it in 1946. Italian communist leader Palmiro Tagliati, whose party remained popular for decades in post-war Italy, presented a different perspective. Tagliati argued that the United States was a nation led by ignorant slaveholders who now wanted to buy entire nations just as they had once bought human beings. In the Soviet Union, Stalin and the Soviet leadership believed that communism would eventually win. The laws of history made that inevitable. But for that very reason, and because of the heavy toll that the Soviet Union had to pay to win the Second World War, they had no intention of invading Western Europe. He thought that the next world war would break out between the imperialist Western powers and the communist parties of Western Europe would rise up to take power, correcting their mistake from the first world war. In China, Mao and the Chinese Communist Party decided to ignore Soviet advice for caution and patience, continuing to wage a civil war after the end of World War II against Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. In 1949, the Chinese communists finally defeated the nationalists, whose venality, brutality, and incompetence had long troubled their backers in Washington. Like Ho Chi Minh in 1945 or Fidel Castro in 1960, Mao had been under the illusion that he could have good relations with the United States. Like Ho and Castro, Mao would be wrong. After the victory of the Chinese communists, the emergency of Red China led to violent recriminations back in the United States. Accusations were hurled across the floors of the House and Senate and at President Truman that the Democrats had lost China. The indictment helped to fuel the anti-communist hysteria at home. The China lobby, an unholy alliance of Chinese nationalists, American businessmen, aspiring politicians, military brass, and other future John Birch Society members put constant pressure on Washington to not only avenge the loss of China, but also clamp down on the rest of Asia. In 1956, Mao famously described American imperialism to journalist Anna Louise Strong as a paper tiger. But back home, the United States was preparing to unleash the apocalypse. Later, Rand Corporation researcher and nuclear war planner under the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations, Daniel Ellsberg, 
would reveal that the Pentagon had crafted a first strike nuclear strategy for launching a war against the Soviet Union. By the Pentagon's own estimate, this nuclear strike would kill 600 million people, or one-fifth of the population of the planet. As the Cold War intensified, the world quickly divided into three camps. The United States, along with other countries including Canada, Western Europe, Japan, and Australia, all assumed the status of first world nations. These nations are usually associated with developed countries that have excess wealth from engaging in colonialism, with first Britain, then the United States at its head. The first world determined the terms on which capitalism spread throughout the world and took the lead in managing global capitalism. The hegemony of the first world first came into crisis with the creation of the second world, consisting of the Soviet Union and later the Eastern Bloc nations. Much like the United States, the foreign policy of the USSR matched its ideological and political commitments. They avoided direct confrontations with the United States where possible in order to avoid a repeat of the Second World War. In the colonial world, the Soviets perceived tensions rising as the capitalist powers continued their fight over colonies. This fight to carve up the globe also presented opportunities for communist parties to struggle against colonialism. Soviets believed that these struggles would be nationalist in nature and encourage communists to make alliances with local nationalist forces. They also believed that revolution could not be imported from outside, but would have to be the product of local forces on the ground. In places where those forces did not exist, they could be created through industrialization programs that would create the industrial working class necessary to carry out a revolutionary program. And then there was the third world, everyone else, most of the world's population. The term third world was coined by the early 1950s, and originally, all of its connotations were positive. As journalist Vincent Bevins writes, quote, When the leaders of these new nation states took up the term, they spoke it with pride. It contained a dream of a better future in which the world's downtrodden and enslaved masses would take control of their own destiny. The term was used in the sense of the third estate during the French Revolution. The revolutionary common people who would overthrow the first and second estates of the monarchy and the clergy. Third did not mean third rate, but something more like the third and final act. The first group of rich white countries had their crack at creating the world, as did the second. And this was the new movement, full of energy and potential, just waiting to be unleashed. For much of the planet, the third world was not just a category, it was a movement. For many third world nations, the goal was to remain neutral in the fight between the United States and the Soviet Union, to not be grass trampled by the elephants fighting. Some even saw the arrangement as an opportunity to play the United States and the Soviet Union off one another in an effort to have the superpowers compete through aid and economic infrastructure development. Egyptian leader Gamal Abel Nasser famously got the funding and engineering support for building the Aswan Dam from the Soviet Union in this way. Many of the conflicts of the early Cold War were created during the resolution of the Second World War. During the Moscow Conference in 1945, American and British officials brokered a deal to help the French reinstitute colonial rule in Indochina, a French colonial territory that consisted of the modern states of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. This fateful agreement, one of dozens meant to rebuild the colonial networks that fed American and European capitalism, marked the beginning of the United States' decades-long involvement in Vietnam. 
In the 1950s, the U.S. provided critical diplomatic cover by reorganizing the French puppet regime under Baudet. This cover both justified the French military occupation of the region and provided an avenue for increased military aid for the conflict. At this point, American foreign policy was still focused on the occupation of Western Europe, as State Department official Charles Bolin explains. Quote, As to Indochina, if the current war there continues for two or three years, we will get very little of sound military development in France. On the other hand, if we can help France to get out of the existing stalemate of Indochina, France can do something effective in Western Europe. The need in Indochina is to develop a local force which can maintain order in the areas theoretically pacified. It is important in order to maintain the French effort in Indochina that any assistance we give presented as a defense of the French Union. As the French soldiers, there would have little enthusiasm for sacrificing themselves to fight for a completely free Indochina in which France would have no part. Yeah, just a couple of years in Indochina, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, Should wrap yeah. that up. <laughs> Unfortunately for the French, however, the Vietnamese people have been fighting colonial occupation for decades by the 1950s. Their fierce resistance stunned French forces who were finally and decisively defeated at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. French journalist Jules Roy reflected on the inevitability of the defeat. Quote, what soldier in this army could be expected to fight to enrich the big landlords and the provincial governors? What kind of honor could be found in the ranks of Baldi's army, trained by the French and paid by the Americans? President Harry Truman had reconfigured the American security state in the late 1940s for the new Cold War. The War Department became the Defense Department. The Air Force created in 1947, which would become the home of the Strategic Air Command, America's nuclear strike force. Perhaps most consequentially, with the passage of the National Security Act of 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency was brought into existence. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> we gave it our next bong right there. <laughs> yeah. Shaped by William Wild Bill Donovan, a corporate lawyer who represented the Rockefeller Foundation and J.P. Morgan before serving as head of the Office of Strategic Services during the World War II, and Alan Dulles, a corporate lawyer representing the companies like United Fruit Corporation, a director of the Council of Foreign Relations, and a former OSS member. President Eisenhower made Dulles the first civilian director of the CIA in 1953, a move designed to tie the agency tightly to the executive branch, where Allen's brother John Foster Dulles served as the Secretary of State. Under the leadership of Donovan and Dulles, the CIA became a haven for corporate lawyers, Ivy League adventurers, society gals, and Nazi war criminals and their collaborators. In short, with the CIA, America's capitalist class brought a key function of the state, its clandestine services, under their direct control. An extension of the progressive era's drive to move crucial state infrastructure out of the turbulent world of democratic control and into the hands of professionals who can manage them with the correct interests in mind. One of the CIA's most important new hires was Frank Wisner. When asked why he did what he did for the U.S. government, Wisner would always tell the same story. He had flown into Romania in September of 1944 to work as station chief for the Office of Strategic Services, the temporary spy agency that Washington had set up during the war. 
Once there, he heard and believed that the Soviets were scheming to take control of the country. But his bosses back home were in no mood to hear that their allies were up to no good. In January of 1945, Stalin ordered that thousands of men and women of German descent be taken back to the Soviet Union to be mobilized for work. Weisner knew some of them personally. Yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) You're going to find they know a lot of these people personally. (laughs) As the forced evacuation began, he rode frantically around the city, as he told it, trying to save them. But he failed. Thousands of people were herded into boxcars and sent to labor camps. According to his family, those scenes would haunt Weisner for the rest of his troubled life. Weisner, sometimes just called Wiz, was born in 1909 to a wealthy landowning family in Missouri. Now, Missouri is one of those sneaky states that you don't necessarily think about being a part of the American South. But the people of Missouri were really, really into Jim Crow laws. As a child, Weisner didn't even put on his own clothes. He would lie down, raise his arms and legs, and have his black maid put on a shirt and trousers for him. Normal stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Just extremely normal. At the University of Virginia, he was tapped to join the Sevens, a secret society so baroque that it only revealed the names of its members upon their death. Journalist Vincent Bevins describes the young Frank Weisner, quote, He was intense, but could come alive, especially at parties, liberally lubricated with alcohol. Wiz became a lawyer at a white shoe firm on Wall Street. Restless and driven by an intense sense of moral purpose, he enlisted in the Navy a year before the Japanese attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. William Donovan liked to pull from corporate law firms when recruiting for the OSS. Donovan himself had gotten into espionage while working for infamous financier J.P. Morgan. Under Morgan's employment, Donovan had been sent on a tour of Europe in the 1920s to gather information on the communist movement. Weisner fit Donovan's OSS like a glove, and he quickly became romanced by the life of a gentleman spy. As Bevins notes, quote, In Romania, Weisner wasn't only gathering information and attempting to save Germans. He was hobnobbing with royalty, drinking and dancing, living in a mansion, and doing magic tricks. He was also socializing alongside the more experienced Soviet agents. After he left Romania, it became clear that Russian spies had infiltrated his entire operation. Like Alan Dulles and William Donovan, Weisner returned to Wall Street after the war. But the same old corporate log gigs left him feeling listless. When he was offered an intelligence position in Berlin to fight the communist, Weisner took it. In Berlin, he was joined by Howard Palfrey Jones, a fellow Columbia alum and diplomat, and Weisner's old boss from the OSS, Alan Dulles. Jones was an advocate for a softer, more diplomatic approach to the Soviet Union. Needless to say, Weisner and Dulles saw things differently. They advocated for the creation of a German currency union in 1948, a first step in the creation of an independent West German state and a glaring indication that the United States would be breaking all of its post-war agreements with the Soviet Union. It was understood on all sides as a quiet declaration of war. For the world, the West ending the Nuremberg trials and reconstituting and then rearming the Nazi state was a bad omen for things to come. For guys like Weisner, they were having the time of their lives. 
1952, Frank Weisner, now working for the newly formed CIA, met with Monty Woodhouse, an English spy working in Tehran. The British were having trouble with the newly elected leader of Iran, Mohammad Mosaddegh. Britain's relationship with Iran dated back to 1909 with the formation of the Anglo-Persian and later Anglo-Iranian oil company. Under the lease agreement, Britain received 80% of the revenue from Iran's massive oil fields, and the revenue was astounding. By 1940, Iran was home to the largest oil refinery on the planet. During the Second World War, a joint British-Soviet invasion of Iran forced out the Nazi officials and oil workers that the Shah had been doing business with, but it also brought new parties to the table in the Soviet Union and the United States. At the Tehran Conference in 1943, the U.S. and Soviet Union forced the British to agree to Iran's post-war independence. In 1951, Mosaddegh became prime minister with a mandate to renegotiate the oil concession and engage in land reform. Mosaddegh and the Iranians had a lot of reasons to resent the British. During the war, there was a famine in British-occupied Iran. The British promised to bring food aid, but the food never came. As many as 4 million Iranians died during the famine, a cruel prelude to a similar famine created by British rule in Bengal a year later. In 1951, Mossadegh and the Iranian parliament passed land reform legislation that would nationalize Iran's oil fields, cutting the British out. Britain initiated a plan in 1952 to lead a military coup against the new nationalist government and reinstall the Shah, who is currently living in Italy as the head of the Iranian state. The British brought the plan to the United States, but the Truman administration remained skeptical. With the U.S. trying to arbitrate between the British and the Iranians, Secretary of State Dean Acheson criticized the Brits' unusual and persistent stupidity in sabotaging every effort at a negotiated settlement. What Acheson didn't know is that British intelligence officers had approached Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the Harvard alum and historian turned CIA agent, grandson of Teddy Roosevelt and nephew of Henry Palfrey Jones, about getting support for the coup. Kermit took the plan to his <laughs> boss. tangled web over at the I CIA. I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> Kermit took the plan to his boss, Frank Weisner. Knowing that the American oil company supported the removal of Mossadegh, Kermit advised the British to hold off until 1953 to see if the new Eisenhower administration would be more amenable. Truman's reluctance to aid the British was a direct result of the debacle of the Korean War. Acheson warned that aiding the British in recolonizing Iran would lead to Iran falling to communism, or worse, a war breaking out in the Middle East that would inevitably draw the U.S. and the Soviet Union into it. It had all the markings of a new Korea-like disaster. The Eisenhower administration was less concerned. The CIA convinced the administration that the coup could be done quickly and quietly with no U.S. troops and plenty of plausible deniability about America's involvement. Even more important, the coup would allow the U.S. to remake imperial relations in the Middle East. Ike had, to Ike had come to the conclusion that the British would have to be reduced from an equal partner to a secondary status when it came to managing the region and its oil. It was simply a bad look to be seen as too closely aligned with the hated British, and the new arrangement would, 
of course, be very beneficial to American capital. Eisenhower gave the okay to the operation early in his administration with a plan to move forward in the summer of 1953. The official story would be that Mossadegh had engaged in land reform and legalized the communist Tuda party as a prelude to joining the Soviet bloc, a story that American officials were well aware was a lie. Vincent Bevins describes what followed, quote, Concerns about communism and the availability of petroleum were interlocked. Together, they drove America to a policy of direct intervention. The Dulles brothers and the CIA got the green light. Kermit Roosevelt took charge of the mission, which they decided to call Operation Ajax. He had a million dollars to spend in Iran as he pleased, a huge sum for the kind of help he wanted to buy. The CIA bribed every politician it could and looked for a general willing to take over to install the Shah as dictator. Agents paid street thugs, strongmen, and circus performers to riot in the streets. When CIA station chief Roger Garan argued that the U.S. was making a historic mistake by aligning itself with British colonialism, Alan Dulles recalled him to Washington. The CIA created pamphlets and posters proclaiming that Mossadegh was a communist, an enemy of Islam. They paid off journalists to write that he was a Jew. The CIA hired gangsters to pretend to be the Tudeh party and attack a mosque. Two of Roosevelt's Iranian agents, who were handling some of the hired muscle, tried to turn down further work at one point, saying the risk was becoming too great. But Roosevelt convinced them by saying that if they refused, he'd kill them. For his part, the Shah was not convinced any of this was a good idea. He took off to Rome at one point, infuriating the Americans who wanted to make him king. But he returned to the palace in August of 1953, rigged parliamentary elections, and served both the CIA and international oil companies well as ruler of the country. The Soviets did not rush to intervene in the country in which they were supposedly so powerful. In Washington, there were celebrations all around, and Kermit Roosevelt was declared a hero. Weisner had finally proved to the men upstairs that there was a real use for his gang of weirdos. It was a major victory for the United States. The leadership of the Tudor party were all either killed or imprisoned, labor was repressed, and the Anglo-Iranian oil company was back up and running with a new revenue split. Under Mossadegh, Iranians owned 100% of the oil in Iran. Under the Shah, the U.S. got 40%, Britain got 40%, France got 14%, and the Dutch received 6%. Iranians were furious at the reversal, but the repression in the aftermath of the coup had decapitated any potential leadership. The British were equally furious, but found themselves unable to dictate terms to their Atlantic cousins. From 1953 to 1979, Iran, under Shah Reza Pahlavi, was a key recipient of U.S. military aid, serving as an imperial pillar of U.S. power in the Middle East, and as a key participant in U.S. anti-communist actions around the world. Iran also became a cautionary tale amongst Arab nationalists regarding the treacherous nature of Western imperialists and the consequences of defying the United States. Inspired by the success in Iran, the U.S. quickly moved to rid itself of a troublesome leader in Central America. 
Jacobo Arbenz Guzman was elected president of Guatemala in 1950. He was a nationalist leader who advocated for land reform that would transfer land from American corporations to the Guatemalan peasantry. In 1953, he passed the Agrarian Reform Act, which nationalized 209,842 acres of uncultivated land, then owned by the American corporate giant, the United Fruit Company, and gave it to the peasants of Guatemala. The Guatemalan government paid United Fruit just over $600,000 for the land. This number was arrived by using the value of the property as reported by the United Fruit Company on their tax forms. Naturally, the company had been underreporting the value of the land to evade taxes, so they were outraged at the amount offered for it. United Fruit listed their former lawyer, John Foster Dulles, to lobby the U.S. government for aid. They created a story that Arbenz was a communist, despite the fact that he was actively persecuting communist leaders at the time. President Eisenhower put the CIA to work on Operation PB Success in 1953. The CIA persuaded disgruntled military general Carlos Castillo Armaz to begin gathering troops for a coup to remove Arbenz. Using weapons and equipment, including two B-29 bombers supplied by the U.S. government, Armaz began his military overthrow in mid-1953. By June 1954, Arbenz had resigned and fled the country. With Guatemala under the control of a string of military dictators, the nationalized land was returned to U.S. business interests, and the labor reforms that had been put in place by Arbenz were rolled back. During the successive military dictatorships that followed, over 100,000 Guatemalans would be killed in the political ethnic purges. The CIA celebrated another stunning success. Back in Indochina, the defeat at Dien Bien Phu forced the French to the negotiating table, and a conference was called in Geneva to once again determine the fate of the people of Southeast Asia. U.S. and French negotiators steered the conference, virtually cutting the Vietnamese out of the discussion of their own independence. As historian Marilyn B. Young notes, quote, The Viet Minh had fought the French to a standstill. Dien Bien Phu was mutually understood to be the last battle of their nine-year war. Yet the 1954 conference at Geneva ended not in a united, independent Vietnam, but in one divided, not with peace, but with renewed war. The Geneva conference reflected neither the aspirations of the Vietnamese, nor the military and political victory of the Viet Minh, but rather the hard realities of Cold War power. The agreement reached at Geneva relegated Vietnamese independence to the northern half of the country. But it held out the promise of a reunification election in 1956. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> the political struggle in Vietnam was playing out exactly as it had in Europe after the war, in China and Korea. The Vietnamese communists under Ho Chi Minh represented those that had fought against Japanese occupation and oppression, and then again against French occupation and oppression. <laughs> The forces backed by the United States were made up of the collaborators and those that profited from those occupations. There was no mass base for support for yet another imperial occupation of Vietnam. Those being the facts on the ground, the U.S. knew that it had to avoid the 1956 election at all costs. So, it was a sign of things to come when Secretary of State John Foster Dulles 
answered a reporter's question about a possible Ho Chi Minh electoral victory. Quote, I said that I thought the United States should not stand passively by and see the extension of communism by any means in Southeast Asia. We are not standing passively by. In the background of the growing Cold War conflict in Asia was the rise of the Third World Nations, countries recently freed from direct colonial rule who were not interested in being enlisted by either side of the Cold War. Self-determination in the imperial periphery posed a threat for the First World Capitalist Order, especially as the USSR emerged as a superpower after the Second World War. As the guarantor of global capitalism, the United States sought to bring these countries in from the sidelines, lest they fall into the Soviet orbit. In 1951, a young House member from Massachusetts named John F. Kennedy embarked on a tour of the Middle East and South Asia with his younger brother, Robert. The tour was meant to burnish Jack's foreign policy bona fides as he prepared to run for the Senate in 1952. Ever since the death of his older brother Joseph Jr. during the war, Jack was groomed by his father to ascend to the presidency, and in the hothouse conditions of the Cold War 1950s, that meant establishing himself as an international statesman. After visiting Indochina, Kennedy wrote that the United States had, quote, allied ourselves to the desperate effort of a French regime to hang on to the remnants of empire. He continued, quote, if one thing was born into me as a result of my experience in the Middle as well as the Far East, it is that communism cannot be met effectively by merely the force of arms. Kennedy warned that we are more and more becoming colonialists in the minds of the people, classed with the imperialist powers of Western Europe. It was critical, Kennedy believed, that the United States change that perception. In India, Kennedy received a lecture from India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. Nehru had come to power in India on the back of promises of land reform, the staple issue of the Third World. While Nehru was not a Leninist by any stretch of the imagination, like many Third World leaders, he looked to the Soviet Union as an example for how former colonies of the West could modernize outside of Western dictates and exploitation. Of course, in India, distrust of the West came easily. British neglect and cruelty during the war had caused a famine that killed upwards of 4 million people in Bengal. The famine was one of the many the British had foisted on the country during its nearly 200-year occupation, the horrors of which would take an entire podcast series to simply scratch the surface of. Suffice it to say that one of the many reasons why the Indian film RRR, 2022's best movie, was so popular was that you ha was you get to watch British soldiers have their heads caved in in brutal detail to the wild applause of audiences everywhere. But this was 1951, and John Kennedy had not seen RRR. In fact, it is the great tragedy of his life that he would never get to see it due to the severe case of an exploding skull syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Bevins describes Jack's meeting with Nehru, quote, When Jack and two younger siblings dined with Nehru in 1951, the Indian leader was imperious, acting bored and unimpressed, and only showed interest in their sister, Pat, Bobby Kennedy reported. When JFK asked Nehru about Vietnam, 
The Indian leader dismissed the French war as an example of a doomed colonialism and said the U.S. was pouring its aid money down a bottomless hole. He gently lectured the Kennedys as if he were speaking to children, and Bobby wrote down his notes in an exacerbated tone that Nehru told them communism offered the people of the third world something to die for. Bobby continued jotting down Nehru's comments in his journal, quote, We Americans have only the status quo to offer these people. Only time would tell if Nehru's lecture would stick. Back in Indochina, the U.S. needed a puppet to run South Vietnam. They settled on Nyo Dinh Diem, a yogi-like mystic capable of taking charge only because the standard set by his predecessor is so low, according to the French. Imperial collaboration was a family tradition for Diem, who had backed the old French, then Japanese, and new French occupations. Despised in his own country, Diem needed friends in Washington to solidify his position. In the U.S., a dummy organization called the American Friends of Vietnam was created, which consisted of influential politicians and other elites eager to bolster their anti-communist bona fides. Among its ranks were Supreme Court Justice and one-time potential Roosevelt VP William O. Douglas, the insane Cold Warrior dubbed the American Pope by the press Cardinal Francis Spellman, and Joe, Robert, and John Kennedy, to name a few. John F. Kennedy, now a senator, laid out the stakes in Vietnam at a symposium for the organization in 1956. Quote, This is our offspring, and if it falls victim to any of the perils that threaten its existence, communism, political anarchy, poverty, and the rest, then the United States, with some justification, will be held responsible, and our prestige in Asia will sink to a new low. In 1957, Diem flew to Washington to address Congress and appeal for more support. He pledged to continue the fight against communism in Vietnam and to, quote, prevent the raw material of the area from falling into communist hands. Diem's admission had pointed to another cause for the war. Among think tanks and State Department analysts, speculation had already begun around the possible raw material bonanza of the region. Eisenhower's National Security Council applied the appropriate Cold War rhetoric to these speculations, warning the president in 1954 that Southeast Asia's oil, rubber, and tin resources were critical for the region, and that, quote, the loss of Southeast Asia, especially of Malaya and Indonesia, could result in such economic and political pressures in Japan as to make it extremely difficult to prevent Japan's eventual accommodation to communism. Prior to the Second World War, Indonesia had been a Dutch colony. As the war came to a close, the United States publicly supported independence for Indonesia, but as with other countries in Asia, privately the U.S. remained indifferent to European efforts to recolonize the massive archipelago. Dutch efforts to retake Indonesia stalled in 1945, however, and quickly created a political crisis. Deciding that Dutch efforts were too destabilizing for British and American corporations operating in Indonesia, the U.S. shifted its support to the Indonesian nationalists. Whereas the French would have to be placated in their efforts to rebuild their empire, the Dutch could be safely ignored without threatening the anti-communist alliance being built in Western Europe. Sukarno became the first president of an independent Indonesia in 1945 a longtime Indonesian nationalist who had been imprisoned by Dutch colonial authorities in the 1930s, Sukarno's politics were, how do I say, 
complicated. <laughs> After the Dutch were routed by the Japanese, Sukarno aided the Japanese occupation, helping to organize labor battalions that were sent back to Japan. After the war, the OSS considered Sukarno's collaborationist roots a major selling point, showing that he was flexible in dealing with foreign powers. <laughs> That's a way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also arising out of the nationalist tumult was the Indonesian Communist Party, or PKI. Founded in 1914, the PKI had even worked alongside Sukarno in the 1920s, but during the Japanese occupation, they found themselves on opposing sides. When nationalist forces revolted against Dutch efforts to reoccupy the country, the PKI formed one of the stronger armed wings of the rebellion, threatening the power of both Sukarno and the burgeoning Indonesian military leadership. In 1948, a localized rebellion of PKI forces in East Java gave Sukarno an excuse to suppress his political rival. With the PKI leadership split over supporting rebellion, right-wing nationalist forces were able to rout the PKI forces, leading to the execution of thousands of communists and imprisonment of many thousands more. It was around this time that the United States began to take a more active interest in Indonesian affairs. In April of 1950, the Joint Chiefs of Staff recommended to President Truman the, quote, early implementation of military aid programs for Indochina, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, and Burma. These programs were meant as a prophylactic to protect Southeast Asia from, quote, communist expansion. The region was described as a, quote, vital segment in the line of containment of communism stretching from Japan southward and around to the Indian Peninsula. A memorandum from the National Security Council two years later would point to some more material concerns on the part of the United States. Quote, Southeast Asia, especially Malaya and Indonesia, is the principal world source of natural rubber and tin, and a producer of petroleum and other strategically important commodities. By 1953, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, was linking Indonesia to the U.S.'s grand Cold War strategy in Southeast Asia and the growing American presence in Indochina. Quote, the area of Indochina is immensely wealthy in rice, rubber, coal, and iron ore. Its position makes it a strategic key to the rest of Southeast Asia. If Indochina should fall, Thailand and Burma would be in extreme danger. Malaya, Singapore, and even Indonesia would become more vulnerable to the communist power drive. For the Americans, Sukarno remained an enigmatic presence in Indonesia. After suppressing the PKI in 1948, he had allowed the Communist Party to reconstitute itself the following year. Indonesia, an archipelago whose islands sprawl across 2 million square miles of sea, are home to hundreds of distinct nationalities speaking more than 700 languages, was not an easy nation to rule. The vacuum left by a lack of national identity filled by ethnic, regional, and religious interests that all competed with one another for economic and political power. Sukarno became a master at balancing these interests. For Sukarno, the PKI helped to balance the power of the Muslim nationalists and the right-wing forces that increasingly dominated the country's formal military. It was a delicate balancing act that was frequently interpreted by Washington as incompetence, or worse, weakness. Then by 1953, the United States began to support right-wing elements within the Indonesian military 
and among the Muslim nationalists. Considering export of Indonesian raw materials critical to the Japanese economy, the National Security Council decided the next year that the U.S. would use all feasible covert means, as well as the use of armed force, if necessary, to prevent any strategically valuable region of Indonesia from falling into communist hands. Two events in 1955 would raise American ire over the situation in Indonesia. That year, Sukarno organized the Bandung Conference, a meeting of newly independent Asian and African nations in Bandung, Indonesia, with the goal of countering American efforts to pull these countries into its Cold War orbit. Seen as a precursor to the creation of the Non-Aligned Movement, as historian William Bloom notes, quote, To the men of the CIA station in Indonesia, the conference was heresy, so much so that their thoughts turned toward assassination as a means of sabotaging it. Later testimony to the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations would reveal that the CIA set about with a plan to assassinate a major Asian leader prior to the conference, presumed to be either Sukarno or Chow and Lai. It's worth noting that a plane carrying a Chinese delegation to the conference was blown up mid-flight, killing all on board. The Chinese government has always maintained that the U.S. carried it out. The other major incident to rock American confidence in Sukarno was a parliamentary resurgence of the PKI, which managed to win 17% of the vote in the 1955 elections. To add insult to injury, the CIA had given $1 million to a Muslim centrist party to counter both Sukarno's Nationalist Party and the PKI. The CIA's party was crushed, and no accounting could be made for where the $1 million in aid actually went. The repression in 1948 had chastened the PKI, who sought a parliamentary strategy for building its political power, skewing the guerrilla strategies pushed by Mao in China or Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. The PKI played by the rules of the Indonesian electoral system. As Vincent Bevan notes, quote, The party was doing things very differently from the Russian or the Chinese Communist parties. PKI's goal, both publicly and privately, was to form an anti-feudal United National Front with the local bourgeoisie, not to worry about implementing socialism until the end of the century. The change in tactics appeared to be paying off, as it quickly became the fourth largest political party in the country. In the 1957 regional election, the PKI received the second most votes, with only Sukarno's INP receiving more. As Bevins notes, quote, The PKI was the most efficient professional organization in the country. Crucially, in a country plagued with corruption and patronage, it had a reputation for being the cleanest of all major parties. Its leaders were disciplined and dedicated. With over 3 million active members by 1960, they were becoming a force in Indonesian politics. The PKI's new dedication to following the letter of the law did not impress Washington, however. Vice President Richard Nixon remarked that, quote, a democratic government was probably not the best kind for Indonesia because the communists could probably not be beaten in election campaign because they were so well organized. Privately, Frank Wisner, who is now overseeing CIA covert operations, stated, quote, I think it's time we held Sukarno's feet to the fire. In 1957, the CIA began reaching out to friendly officers in the Indonesia military about potentially removing or assassinating the troublesome leader. 
The conflict seemed to be coming to a head when the U.S. agreed to work with Australian, Japanese, and British intelligence officials to break away from the more resource-rich islands from Indonesia. In 1958, the Masjumi Party, the Muslim nationalist organization that had previously absconded with a million dollars in CIA money, declared an independence of the island of Sumatra and began an armed resistance against the Indonesian government there. An Indonesian military attaché who had defected to the United States suddenly showed up in Sumatra to lead the rebel forces and the CIA organized an air force of several hundred pilots to fly weapons and other supplies in for the rebels. They then quickly escalated the operation by using their pilots to fly bombing missions. The whole operation was so clumsy as to be obvious even to the most lay observer. In May, an editorial in the New York Times tried to counter the obvious role that America was playing in the rebellion, quote, it is unfortunate that high officials of the Indonesian government have given further circulation to the false report that the United States government was sanctioning aid to Indonesia's rebels. The position of the United States government has been made plain again and again. Our Secretary of State was emphatic in his de declaration that this country would not deviate from a correct neutrality. The United States is not ready to step in to help overthrow a constituted government. Those are the hard facts. Jakarta does not help its case here by ignoring them. Two weeks later, the Indonesian government presented Alan Lawrence Pope at a press conference. The Florida native had been shot down while flying a bombing raid over Ambon, Indonesia. Proper procedure for CIA pilots was to remove all identifying IDs, information, and documents before flying on covert ops such as these. But Pope was a longtime veteran of the CIA. He knew that an anonymous foreign pilot caught bombing civilians would be quickly executed by the, by the Indonesian state. So he kept a stash of 30 incriminating documents on him, detailing his activities and his connections to the CIA and U.S. government. Pope reasoned that this would make him a high-value prisoner, subject to exchange rather than execution. President Kennedy would later agree to exchange Pope for a fleet of C-130 Hercules transport planes. Pope continued working for the CIA after this, telling a reporter, quote, They said Indonesia was a failure, but we knocked the shit out of them. We killed thousands of communists, even though half of them probably didn't even know what communism meant. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool guy. <laughs> the Pope affair was a massive embarrassment for the United States and the CIA. More importantly, it alienated the nationalist movements within the government and the military that the U.S. was counting on to counter the influence of the PKI. It even led to the Masjumi party being outlawed, wiping the CIA cutout off the political scene. Washington found itself forced to go back to supporting Sukarno with weapons and aid to hold the PKI at bay. For his part, Sukarno switched to a new political strategy which he called guided democracy. Under this strategy, he reorganized the Indonesian parliament so that half of its members were presidential appointments and increased the role of military in running basic governmental affairs. To the balance of growing power of the military, he extended a host of regional offices to the PKI. Historian Gabriel Kokel writes about, his, writes about the transition. Quote, Sukarno, the U.S. ambassador to the Jakarta, observed 
had no had no intention of sharing power with the PKI. And the United States intensified its commitment to aid the military and encourage it eventually to take power. Under guided democracy, the military's belief in its mandate to help run the nation deepened profoundly at the ideological level. And American officials sustained intensive contacts with those senior officers most likely to resist Sukarno and the PKI. By 1962, more than 1,000 Indonesian military officers were studying war at American army bases. The new strategy in Indonesia dovetailed nicely with a new academic field labeled modernization theory. With the rise of independence movements throughout the colonial world, there was a need on the part of intellectuals at the heart of the empire to explain why capitalism had failed to develop these countries. For communists, the answer was simple. Imperial powers were keeping these colonies underdeveloped in order to exploit them as points of cheap resource extraction. In short, imperialism was to blame. Casting about for an alternative explanation, the capitalist world came up with a theory that countries go through stages of development and authoritarian control from an enlightened elite is required to shepherd the society through these stages successfully. Historian Peter Dale Scott describes how academia came to the aid of the CIA in Indonesia. Around 1958, quote, a small group of U.S. academic researchers and U.S. Air Force and CIA subsidized think tanks began pressuring their contacts in the Indonesian military publicly, often through U.S. scholarly journals and presses, to seize power and liquidate the PKI opposition. The most prominent example is Guy Pocker, who in 1958, both taught at the University of California at Berkeley and served as a consultant at the RAND Corporation. In a RAND Corporation book published by the Princeton University Press, Pocker urged his contacts in the Indonesian military to assume full responsibility for their nation's leadership, fulfill a mission, and hence to strike, sweep their house clean. Although Pocker may not have intended anything like the scale of bloodbath which eventually ensued, there's no escaping the fact that mission and sweep clean were buzzwords for counterinsurgency and massacre, and as such were used frequently before and during the coup. A 1959 study from the State Department on the topic summed up the modernization theory position. A recent history of Latin America, quote, indicates that authoritarianism is required to lead backward societies through their socioeconomic revolutions. The trend towards military authoritarianism will accelerate as its developmental problems become more acute. Vincent Bevins describes the impact of the study, quote, The National Security Council met to discuss the report with the president and to shower its conclusions with lavish praise, in Indonesia especially. They began to view the army as they viewed themselves, as a bulwark against communism and a modernizing political and economic force. During the Eisenhower years, there was a steady escalation of the war in Vietnam that mirrored many of the smaller-scale conflicts of the Cold War. Uh, the U.S. supplied weapons, intelligence, and logistics to the South Vietnamese Army, known as ARVN, and police, as well as advisors to help guide everything from military planning to political repression. On the international stage, the U.S. provided diplomatic cover for the crimes and depredations of the DM regime. Steady escalation of these tactics and resources yielded little results. 
the South Vietnamese puppet state remained wildly unpopular, forcing the U.S. to cancel its promised reunification election in 1956, and the resistance against it was growing. In the 1960 presidential election, John Kennedy ran against Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon. Kennedy pursued what would become a tried-and-true tactic of the Democratic Party, running to Nixon's right. Kennedy hammered Nixon on the mythic missile gap and stated that the U.S. had fallen behind the Soviet Union in everything from energy production to the production of engineers. Now, the Kennedys have enjoyed a revival in popularity over the last 40 years, but the obsession with Camelot, as Kennedy's White House later became known, was always more the product of romantic fantasy than facts. The Kennedys were hardened Cold Warriors. Joe Kennedy had helped bring Joseph McCarthy to prominence in the U.S. Senate and had Robert Kennedy placed on his staff alongside Roy Cohn. Hell, McCarthy was even the shortstop on the Kennedy family softball team. Once in office, Kennedy began to aggressively pursue the war in Vietnam. In 1961, the U.S. began providing helicopters and tactical air support, inaugurating an air war that would kill millions over the next 15 years. In November of that year, Kennedy authorized the use of airdrop chemical defoliants, most notoriously Agent Orange. In 1962, U.S. military personnel in the region increased from 840 to 5,500, and Kennedy authorized the use of napalm against South Vietnam. While the genocidal character of the war was coming to shape, it was still not fully defined. Early in the Kennedy administration, it appeared that the U.S., still licking its wounds from the Korea, was willing to pursue a more covert counterinsurgency strategy. The CIA began running operations in the country that included everything from sabotage in North Vietnam to political assassinations in South Vietnam. Kennedy also dramatically increased the special forces budget within the various branches of the military, a prelude to authorizing special forces missions in Vietnam. As NSC member Robert Comer would note, quote, This will require circumvention of the Geneva Accords, but we should not let this stop us. Later in the war, the CIA and military special forces, most notable the Navy SEALs, would collaborate in the Phoenix Program, a program of systematic torture and mass murder meant to terrorize the South Vietnamese into submission. In 1962, the U.S. initiated the Strategic Hamlet Strategy. This strategy entailed creating a fortified camp that the U.S. could relocate whole villages into, where they could be concentrated under the armed guard of American soldiers. It's concentration camps. They built concentration camp, folks. Modeled after the camps used, you guessed it, in the occupation of the Philippines. It's important to note at this point, the war is being waged almost entirely against the people of South Vietnam. An Associated Press reporter described the brutality of U.S. airstrikes in 1961. Quote, There is no question that the results are revolting. Unfortunately, the Viet Cong builds bunkers so skillfully it is rarely touched by aerial bombs or napalm, except in cases of direct hits. But huts are flattened and civilian loss of life is generally high. In some, the charred bodies of children and babies have made pathetic piles in the middle of the remains of marketplaces. In the face of such savagery, the people of Vietnam dug in and fought even harder against the American occupation. 
While the situation in Vietnam continued to deteriorate, the CIA dealt with its first major defeat on the beaches of Cuba. The 1961 effort to invade Cuba represented both a significant escalation of the CIA's covert strategy of regime change and a significant setback to U.S. Cold War policy. Cuba had been a colony of the United States since the 1898 Spanish-American War. By the late 1950s, Cuba was being run by a military dictator named Fulgencio Batista, with the full blessings of the United States. A group of peasant guerrillas under the leadership of Fidel Castro overthrew Batista's dictatorship in January of 1959 after three years of fighting. Within months, the Eisenhower administration began contemplating the overthrow of Castro's regime. By October, planes were taking off from Florida airstrips to carry out strafing and bombing runs in Cuba. By November, Eisenhower had made the decision to move to overthrow the Cuban regime. At this time, the State Department advised Ike that he should take measures to conceal the hand of the U.S. in any effort to unseat Castro, as any overt U.S. action would lead to mass rebellion that could spread out of Cuba and into Latin America. Ike ordered the CIA to carry out a covert program of sabotage and terrorism on the island in order, un in order to undermine support for the new government. When Kennedy took office in 1961, he inherited Eisenhower's plot to invade Cuba. Robert McNamara, Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, would later, would later testify that the administration was, quote, hysterical about Castro and the planned invasion. Their hysteria was explained in a report prepared by Arthur Schlesinger for JFK in 1960. The report noted that the problem in Cuba was, quote, the spread of the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands. He explained the appeal of this idea throughout Latin America, where, Quote, the distribution of land and other forms of national wealth greatly favors the property classes, and the poor and underprivileged, stimulated by the example of the Cuban Revolution, are now demanding opportunities for a decent living. Oh, hate it. Hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Who, who hasn't this happened to? Yeah. In, in your suppression <laughs> of a, a Caribbean island. <laughs> With Cuba representing an existential threat to the U.S. imperial order in Latin America, Kennedy gave the go-ahead for the invasion. The invasion consisted of anti-Castro militants, culled from the former Batista Cuban oligarchy, now in exile in Florida, and U.S. air power, which would provide vital support. On the 17th of April, 1961, 1,500 Cuban exiles staged an invasion of the island. The attack was doomed from the start, as boats were run aground on reefs, delaying troop movement, and soldiers being parachuted in had their supplies dropped in swamps. Castro called for a general resistance to the invading forces when within three days, soldiers were thrown out of the island. Kennedy had balked at the last minute on sending significant American air power, fearing the diplomatic consequences of discovery. The defeat of the Cuban invasion proved to be a stunning embarrassment, both for the Kennedy administration and for the CIA who had planned the attack. The obsession with Cuba continued, however, and plans for a new invasion of the island began to be drafted in the immediate aftermath of the battle. Tensions again peaked with Cuba a year later in what became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Cuba invited the Soviet Union to place nuclear ballistic missiles on the island. Castro and the Cubans chose the strategy, feeling that it was the only way to deter an American invasion they were sure was being planned. 
And as it turns out, according to testimony from Robert McNamara, Castro was right. Plans were already being formulated. The Kennedy tapes reveal that the missile placement did in fact convince the administration that any invasion of the island would inevitably lead to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union, leading ultimately to the scuttling of plans for an overt invasion. The tapes also reveal that the threat of nuclear missiles in Cuba also probably helped to avert a U.S. invasion of Venezuela that Kennedy was planning should nationalist forces there make any moves to nationalize their oil industry. For the Soviet Union, the missile crisis was a ploy on the part of Khrushchev, who had abandoned the Soviet concept of war of the whole people, for an increased reliance on nuclear weapons and nuclear diplomacy. Khrushchev hoped that by placing missiles so close to American shores, he could obtain closer international scrutiny of American American ballistic missile sites on the borderlands of the Soviet Union, particularly in Turkey. During the talks to de-escalate the crisis, Khrushchev predicated the removal of missiles from Cuba on the removal of American missiles from Turkey. In the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. simply tightened its embargo on the tiny island while it stepped up its destabilization campaigns, consisting of terrorism and assassination plots. Ironically, on the same day that Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, CIA-backed terrorists attempt to kill Castro in Havana. Ultimately, 638 assassination schemes and attempts had been made against Castro. Yet, in the words of Florida Marlins manager Ozzie Guillen, quote, A lot of people had wanted to kill Fidel Castro for the last 60 years, but that son of the bitch is still here. It should be noted that the United States stands alone in its demonization of and loathing for the Cuban regime. When Kennedy asked the Mexican ambassador in 1961 to join the U.S. in collective defense against Cuba, the ambassador politely declined, stating, quote, If we publicly declare that Cuba is a threat to our security, 40 million Mexicans will die laughing. The punishment of Cuba by the United States continues to this day. In 1960, Arthur Schlesinger feared that if the Cuban example spread, the U.S. would not be able to hold on to Latin America. And after 60 years, fear of spread of the Cuban virus still plagues American imperialists. Back in Vietnam, by 1963, Diem's faith in being able to maintain his position was shook, and he began publicly calling for reduction in U.S. forces. In May, Diem's brother told the Washington Post that they would like to see the U.S. military presence in the country reduced by half. Making it worse, French officials began stating that they would support a neutral South Vietnam. On August 29th, Kennedy and his National Security Council agreed to begin preparations for a coup against Diem. On November 1st, Diem and his brother were assassinated in a military coup in Saigon. Kennedy sent a memo to Ambassador Lodge in Saigon praising him and his staff for carrying out the operation. The assassination marked a point of no return moment for the U.S. and Vietnam. By publicly assassinating the only feint toward South Vietnamese independence, Kennedy had committed the U.S. to a full-scale occupation and war. The irony being that three weeks after Diem's assassination, Kennedy himself would be assassinated. Upon Kennedy's death... There were 16,700 American military personnel in Vietnam, 20 times more than when he had taken office. But the increase was less a sign of Kennedy's devotion to the war, though he was devoted, 
as it was a sign that the U.S. was increasingly unable to contain the resistance of the Vietnamese people. Every escalation of the war only increased the resistance to the occupation, with the U.S. predictably responding with more brutality. In March of 1964, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara wrote in his report on Vietnam that the situation was, quote, unquestionably growing worse. Security has deteriorated badly. The Viet Cong control virtually all facets of peasant life in the southernmost provinces. McNamara called for a major escalation of the U.S. funding for the South Vietnamese military, as well as an escalation in American forces for the purpose of retaliatory actions against North Vietnam. Kennedy's key national security advisor stayed on with Lyndon Bain Johnson to ensure the continuity of the war. McGeorge Bundy warned Johnson that any move towards neutrality in the peace process would lead to the loss of South Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, and Malaysia, as well as a move towards neutrality on the part of Japan and the Philippines, and a possible reigniting of the Korean War. Finally, he warned that it would be a betrayal of all anti-communist Vietnamese, reminding Johnson, quote, there are enough of them to lose us an election. Walt Rostow warned that neutrality was a French plot to bring the Chinese communists into the UN and would be, quote, the greatest setback to U.S. interests on the world scene. What the fuck? <laughs> like, what? These guys rock. <laughs> I, I I just wish I could have that brain, man. Yeah. Like, that, that, that sounds so nice. <laughs> it, it's worth taking a second out to note that Part of the uh, attraction to the Kennedy administration at the time was that he, you know, both said and brought in, I'm going to bring in nothing but professionals to advise me. No political hacks. I'm going to Harvard. I'm asking for their best. This is what he got. This is their best. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Malaya, a colonial possession covering the Malaysian Peninsula from the Thai border down to the tip of Singapore, was one of Britain's last and most important territories in Asia. When London finally decolonized the region and began to create the new country of Malaysia, President Sukarno of Indonesia became adamantly opposed to the form it took. He believed that the English were employing imperial trickery to weaken revolutionary forces in Asia, and he was mostly right. Many in Malaya, especially Singapore, were attracted to communism and sympathized with the movement. London decided to carve up Malaya into its northern part while scoping out Singapore. This effectively combined different distinct ethnic groups together and called it Malaysia. Malaysia's creation was the result of Britain's attempt at quelling revolutionary fervor by diluting the proportion of ethnic Chinese in the country. Much to the embarrassment of British authorities, Sukarno declared in early 1963 that the formation of Malaysia was, quote, the product of the brain the thinking, the goals, the effort, and the initiative of neocolonialism. Sukarno's confrontational approach had the enthusiastic support of the PKI, tentative support from the military, and likely the support of much of the population. The episode came to be known as Confrontasi, or Confrontation. He made those declarations just as his economic advisors went to Washington to negotiate with officials from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. Indonesia was suffering economically in the early 1960s and locked in discussions with the U.S. There were two major issues. 
First, Sukarno had dedicated a huge portion of national resources since 1958 to the military and the pursuit of disputes over West New Guinea and now Malaysia. Second, Indonesia had begun to rewrite the regulations governing its oil industry after expelling the Dutch, greatly concerning U.S. officials. The New York Times published an editorial warning that Sukarno was, quote, inexorably addicted to nationalistic excess, and adding, how he deals with the oil companies will be a major test of his intentions. The IMF demanded what amounted to a structural adjustment program in Indonesia, which dictated spending cuts, an increase in the production of raw materials for export, currency devaluation, monetary tightening, and an end to government subsidies. Sukarno's ministers went along with the IMF's demands, and they had a swift, severe, and widespread impact on the population, which saw prices double, triple, even quintuple overnight. The PKI denounced the measures as an attack on the poor, but the government pressed forward anyway, seemingly committed to securing the next aid package from Washington. Konfrontasi threw all of these delicate international negotiations into question. Indonesian troops began to engage in low-level cat-and-mouse skirmishes at the Malaysian border on the island of Borneo. The United States grew increasingly concerned about the threat that Indonesia posed to its British ally, who America's strategic planners were relying on as part of their Southeast Asian anti-communist security alliance. Then there was the issue of Sukarno's threats against American oil companies working in Indonesia. Gabriel Kolko describes the tension that was being put on the American imperial project in Indonesia. Quote, Protecting U.S. business with a ferocity that has few equals anywhere took an inordinate amount of the embassy's attention and not only greatly complicated rapport with the very forces that the United States was relying upon, but threatened to weaken them all as well. Interspersed between meetings of Ambassador Howard Jones with officials where Jones broached a military takeover and gave obvious hints of U.S. support in time of crisis, the Indonesians were repeatedly threatened with egg cuts should its 1963 oil law, which the oil companies considered tantamount to expropriation, be applied. Sukarno's confrontasi had backfired, alienating even some other third world nations who believed he was making a mistake by confronting the West when the third world was supposed to go their own way and remain independent actors. But can you blame Sukarno? He's witnessing the creation of Malaysia, Washington increasing their military support for the war in Vietnam, and CIA dropped bombs on his own country. <laughs> The writing seemed to be on the wall, and Sukarno was trying to read it. There was a noticeable shift in Indonesian-U.S. relations when, with the transition from Kennedy to Lyndon Johnson, through which rapid growth of the PKI and the deteriorating situation from the point of view of the security state is unclear if who was in office shaped the new tougher stance. FaceTime with Sukarno diminished. Engagement with Indonesia went down. U.S. economic aid to Indonesia dried up in 1963, but aid to the military increased. The shift in aid extended into the private, definitely in quotations, sector as well. The two American oil companies operating in Indonesia, Stanvac and Caltex, stopped paying royalties to the Sukarno government and began paying much more substantial sums to the Indonesian military through its own oil company, Permenia, in 1963. 
In early 1965, Lockheed, against the advice of their own counsel, switched its payoffs for the airplane purchases from members of the Sukarno government to an individual connected to General Suharto of the Indonesian military. Freeport Sulphur reached an agreement with officials close to the Indonesian military to exploit copper mines in West Papua five months before the military came into power. The money garnered from these new financial arrangements proved critical for the military in the first few months of the coup. These shifted money flows going going into Sukarno's government sent the Indonesian economy into a tailspin beginning in 1963. Peter Dale Scott describes the situation. Quote, this refusal to send economic aid suggests U.S. aggravation of Indonesia's economic woes in 1963 through 1965 was a matter of policy rather than inadvertence. Indeed, if the CIA's overthrow of Allende was a relevant analogy, then one would expect someday to learn that the CIA, through currency speculations and other hostile acts, contributed actively to the radical destabilization of the Indonesian economy in the weeks just before the coup. When the price of rice quadrupled between June 30th and October 1st, and the black market of the dollar skyrocketed. This blackballing of the Indonesian economy and Sukarno's government after Johnson ascended to the presidency made Sukarno go as far as to openly speculate that JFK was assassinated because of the inroads he was making with other third world countries. Always the adroit politician, Sukarno tried to balance the growing tension with the U.S. by becoming more anti-American in his statements and forging closer ties with other Asian socialist countries. As America's war against Vietnam continued to escalate, Sukarno declared, quote, a year of living dangerously, taking shots at Washington and also his own generals for profiting off state enterprises they controlled. After Malaysia was inducted into the U.N. Security Council, Sukarno protested by pulling Indonesia out of the United Nations altogether and declared that the CIA was trying to kill him. The situation on the archipelago was getting dire. At the same time, Sukarno's health was visibly deteriorating. The PKI, the Indonesian military, Washington, and most importantly, the people of Indonesia grew increasingly concerned about who would replace Indonesia's longtime leader. Sukarno's turn to the left was popular with the population, but upset conservative blocs, most notably the army. Sukarno floated the idea of creating a new popular militia comprising regular people, workers, and peasants that would exist alongside the professional army. One big supporter of creating a people's army was, you guessed it, China's Mao Zedong. Seeing the declining health of Sukarno, Mao held a meeting and spoke with the leader of the PKI, Dien Adit. Mao speculated that the right wing of Indonesia was ready to seize power and asked if the PKI was determined to fight to do the same. Although Adit agreed, he also expressed that he trusted the lead military generals would be flexible rather than seizing powers by starting a coup. Mao was unimpressed with this sentiment, responding, quote, that is unreliable. The current situation has changed. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah. And further suggested that Adit, quote, should be prepared for both peace talks and armed struggles. Adit and the PKI leadership did not prepare their party for armed struggle. On the fateful night of September 30th, 1965, 
a group of mid-level officers and the soldiers directly under their command raided top officers' homes and captured six generals from Sukarno's inner circle. Operating under the name the September 30th Movement, the abductors took the generals to a nearby airbase, killed them, and dumped their bodies down a well. Publicly, the government announced the kidnappings had been part of a coup attempt against Sukarno on the part of the Council of Generals. Within 12 hours, General Saharto crushed the September 30th movement and was now in direct control of the country. By January of 1967, Sukarno had been stripped of all titles and placed under house arrest. General Saharto was named president for life. Today, we still don't know the real reason why the September 30th movement happened or who planned it. Was it a plot by General Suharto? The officers leading the kidnapping plot had been trained in the United States. And the six generals that were targeted were the leading members of Sukarno's most loyal faction of the military. Even the idea of the Council of Generals plot was a CIA misinformation campaign that had been launched in 1965 to spread rumors of an impending coup targeting Sukarno and the military. Or was it a communist plot hatched by the PKI, as Suharto, the military, and American officials claimed? All NSC and CIA files on Indonesia from the three months leading up to the kidnapping plot are still classified, so who's to say? <laughs> 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 Nothing to hide here. No need to look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing we know for a fact, General Suharto had back channels with the CIA and was deemed a fierce anti-communist ally to the United States. Roger Hillsman, a former CIA and State Department official, reflected that in 1963, quote, one third of the Indonesian general staff had some sort of training from Americans and almost half of the officer corps. As a result of both the Civic Action Project and the training program, the American and Indonesian military had come to know each other rather well. Bonds of personal respect and even affection existed. Facing no armed resistance, Saharto ordered that all media be shut down in the aftermath of the kidnappings, apart from the military outlets that he controlled. The only non-military paper that printed anything in the immediate aftermath was, weirdly, the Communist Party's newspaper, which cheered on the September 30th movement days after the movement had already failed. The prose style was different from their usually published material, almost like they had some new writers over at the paper. <laughs> Many suspected that this was published by the army to incriminate the PKI. Others suspected that it had been fabricated by the CIA to incriminate the PKI. Days later, Saharto used all mass communications at his disposal to accuse the PKI of shocking crimes, using deliberate, scandalous lies to drum up hatred against not only the PKI, but anyone in the country perceived as being on the left in general. The stories were wild. The military was already pushing the idea that the PKI was behind the failed September 30th movement, but Saharto went further, claiming the Indonesian Communist Party brought the general's bodies back to the Air Force base and began a depraved demonic ritual. While members of the women's movement danced naked, mutilating the bodies of the brave generals, castrating them and gouging out their eyes before finally murdering them. The military also claimed that the PKI had long lists of people they were going to kill in the wake of their coup plot, with mass graves already prepared and ready to be filled. 
The U.S. responded to Zuharta's newfound hold in Indonesia by covertly supplying Zuharta with essential mobile and communications equipment to their military. This move by the U.S. tacitly admits that they recognize Zuharta's army as the true leader of Indonesia, rather than Sukarno, who was legally still the president. The Life Western comes pre- you fast, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Western press wasted no time cheering on Suharto's coup. The BBC, Voice for America, Radio Australia all emphasized and regurgitated Suharto's propaganda, demonizing the PKI as savages, inhuman, and evil. Every single story of the Indonesian army told was a lie. But that didn't matter. Three decades after the incident, the myth of demonic rituals and kill lists became something of a religion under Suharto. The official state monument of the kidnappings depicted a scene of communist plotters and wild women desecrating the bodies of generals. Suharto even had a three-hour film created detailing this gruesome mythology and aired it on national public television every year on September 30th. Suharto's absurdly fanatical anti-communist narrative could have been out of a novel satirizing the anti-communist global right wing. It was cartoonish yet still very real. And more importantly, it set the stage for the military's final act. After the kidnapping plot, Sukarno was still president, at least in name, and there was a large swath of Communist Party members and people who sympathized with their movement. The army quickly took care of both problems. Ishak Jursa, a fierce Indonesian anti-communist military commander who studied at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, went on a tour across the country instructing people to kill Communist Party members. It was understood that if they didn't comply, they themselves would get killed. He would tell villagers, quote, I will destroy them down to their roots. If in the village you find members of the PKI, but do not kill them, it will be you who will be punished. And they would respond, crush the PKI, crush the PKI, crush the PKI. Locals understood the assignment. It was kill or get killed. The mass murder spree in Indonesia began on October 7th, 1965. The military police started arresting a startling number of people to the point where leftists started turning themselves in. An army newspaper published a cartoon of a man striking a tree trunk with an axe. On the tree is written G30S, the Indonesian language acronym for the September 30th movement, and the roots spell PKI. The caption reads, exterminate them down to the roots. Internally, the Indonesian army called this Operasi Pinapasan, translating to Operation Annihilation. Back in the U.S., officials followed the genocide closely. The State Department received a cable from the American ambassador in Jakarta laying out the situation. Quote, the PKI has seen some damage to its organizational strength through arrest, harassment, and in some cases, execution of PKI cadres. If army repression of PKI continues and army refuses to give up position of power to Zakarno, PKI strength can be cut back. In the long run, however, army repression of PKI would not be successful unless it is willing to attack communism as such. The army has nevertheless been working hard at destroying the PKI, and I, for one, have increasing respect for its determination and organization in carrying out this crucial assignment. Police expanded their scope. 
and scooped girls from their homes, accusing them of being in the women's rights movement who supposedly mutilate genitals. Most of the girls didn't even know what groups they were referring to. Nevertheless, they were put in prison. While in prison, victims were subject to interrogation, torture, and rape at the hands of their captors. Women accused of being in the women's rights groups were seen as subhuman, not women, but animals and sexually depraved witches, an enemy of Islam and the state of Indonesia itself. National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy wrote to President Johnson that events in Indonesia since September 30th, quote, are so far a striking vindication of U.S. policy towards that nation in recent years. On the same day, Ambassador Marshall Green sent a cable to the State Department, quote, As yet, there's no indication Army incapable. We agree that if it would be virtually impossible to keep secret any direct U.S. government assistance. If assistance were given and it became known, we question whether Army would be helped rather than hurt. We suspect that if military authorities ever really need our help uh, in this matter, they would let us know. Two weeks later, the White House authorized the CIA station in Bangkok to provide small arms to its military contact in central Java for use against the PKI. Despite the generous offer, after seven years of close cooperation with Washington, the military was already well equipped to handle themselves. Advanced weaponry isn't needed to arrest civilians, especially ones who provide almost no resistance. Instead, officials in the embassy and the CIA decided the army needed information. Working with CIA analysts, Embassy Political Officer Robert Martens prepared lists with names of over 5,000 communists and suspected communists and handed them over to the army so that these people could be murdered and checked off the list. This was, as far as we know, at least the third time in history that the U.S. officials had supplied lists of communists and alleged communist allies so that they can round them up and kill them. Guatemala in 1954. Iraq in 1963, and now, on a much larger scale, was Indonesia in 1965. Quote, It really was a big help to the army, said Martins. I probably have a lot of blood on my hands, but that's not all bad. Just cool, normal guys. For many in Indonesia, the gravity of the situation had still not set in. Vincent Bevins describes a scene in a city in central Java. Quote, When Sakono entered prison... He felt just fine. He had done nothing wrong, so he figured he would just do some interviews, provide some information, and clear his name. He wasn't a full member of the PKI himself, but had been variously and proudly involved with the Communist Party since he was very young. So he immediately ran into a lot of old friends. There was Sutrisno, the party cadre who had given him classes in Marxism-Leninism when he was younger. Suhada, his short, slightly chubby older friend, who always wore sunglasses, was there too. He was in the party central committee, a funny guy who always gave amazing speeches. It was practically a reunion. The mood was light, almost festive. They began singing revolutionary songs together, not even in defiance of the police, but just in a kind of joyful solidarity. That night, while everyone was sleeping, they took away 12 of the prisoners. They took away Sutrisno, they took away Suhada. They took away his friends, Kamdi and Sumarno and Suharjo. They never came back. No one ate breakfast the next morning. There was no more singing, no more cheer, no one talked. This couldn't be happening. It went against everything Sakono had learned and believed his entire life. The military and the police were defenders of the revolution. 
Indonesia had a system of law and order, of fair trial, of evidence, and of justice. Typically with mass killings, the ones doing the killing usually make a statement by staging the murders publicly, as a warning and disciplinary statement to the families in public to not mess with them. The act of disappearing people was an innovation of mass violence, pioneered in Indonesia. Suddenly, there are no official executions. People are just taken in the middle of the night and disappeared, leaving family and loved ones with no idea that anything happened to the victims. Vincent Bevins expands on this dynamic, quote, If they complained or rebelled, could that be what cost their imprisoned loved ones their lives? Might they be taken too? Even in the face of overwhelming evidence that mass murder is occurring, the human instinct is to hold out hope that your son or your daughter might still be saved. This freezes people and makes populations much more quiescent, easier to exterminate, and easier to control. Historians who study violence in Asia believe this was the first time forced disappearances had been used. Though military and police took captives to special locations at night and killed them, it wasn't often uniformed officers pulling the trigger. The country's largest Muslim organization had a youth wing and militia wing that played a helpful hand to Saharto's military. The armed wing Bonser was made to sound like Hitler's Panzer tanks. The founder said he was studying Mein Kampf to teach him how to deal with communists. It was the organized fascist groups collaborating with the police and military who greatly aided in the Indonesian genocide and handled the scale of bodies getting disappeared every night. The number growing and growing, corpses started to pile up everywhere. The allusions to the Nazis were not only on the side of Indonesia's right-wing militias. In 1964, Guy Pocker penned a memorandum for RAND where he expressed his concerns about whether the Indonesian military had the stomach for, in his eyes, what needed to be done. He worried that they, quote, would probably lack the ruthlessness that made it possible for the Nazis to suppress the Communist Party of Germany. These right-wing and military elements are weaker than the Nazis, not only in numbers and in mass support, but also in unity discipline, and leadership. Three years later, Pocker would praise the, quote, unexpected ruthlessness with which the PKI was destroyed. He remarked that no legalistic constraints interfered with the summary execution or with the extermination of countless communist families throughout the Indonesian archipelago. The Salwat of modernization theory would later go on to praise the transition of Suharto's military dictatorship as Indonesia finally reaching, quote, Age of Reason. U.S. officials were in close contact with the military while the genocide was being carried out, making it clear to the military that direct assistance could resume if the PKI were destroyed, Sukarno was removed, and attacks on U.S. investments halted. They made it extra clear that U.S. aid flows were also conditional on Indonesia's willingness to adopt IMF and U.S.-approved economic plans. Under Saharto during the genocide, the Indonesian economy was in shambles as the genocide disrupted normal economic relations. With that in mind, according to a State Department cable in December, all army leaders seemed to want to know was, quote, how much is it worth to us that PKI be smashed? Turns out it was worth a lot. But U.S. officials were also very alarmed that despite the terror campaign and genocide they were waging on communists, socialists, feminists, and literally anyone else they wanted, Saharto's military government-in-waiting 
had not yet reversed Sukarno's plans to take over U.S. oil companies. This was by far America's most important economic concern. They, quote, bluntly and repeatedly warned the emerging Indonesian leadership that if nationalization went forward, support from Washington would be withheld, and their grip on the power and their grip on power was at stake, according to historian Bradley Simpson's analysis of the declassified communications. The White House enlisted Australian and Japanese officials in the fight. A day later, Suharto arrived at a high-level meeting by helicopter, strode into the room, and quote made it crystal clear to all assembled that the military would not stand for precipitous moves against oil companies. Then he walked out. The U.S. had won. In December, the violence made it to the island of Bali. The violence in Bali was the worst in all of Indonesia. Some killings were even carried out by members of the PNI, the Nationalist Party Sukarno had founded, which, on other islands, found itself the target of state violence. The propaganda was spread around the island, claiming that the women who had been in Jirwani, the BKI's woman organization, were planning to sell their bodies to buy weapons for the communist revolt. It was rumored that these women would seduce men in order to castrate them for the cause. For the people of Bali, the line in the sand was clear. You're either with us or with them. And you know what we do to them. The level of violence in Bali was spectacular. 5% of the entire population of Bali was murdered, amounting to 80,000 people, the highest proportion of deaths in the country. Balinese Hindus treat the loss of a family member's body as a deep spiritual tragedy. Kids watch for over 4 kilometers to find their father's body. What they found instead were fields of bodies. They would sort through decomposing bodies, picking up skulls, trying to identify their fathers, before realizing it was impossible. There were too many bodies to shift through. It was overwhelming. Today, Bali is known for its luxury tourism. Many of its resorts are located directly on the beaches where the mass extermination sites were. Racial hierarchy is prominent in the tourism industry, with predominantly white, rich clientele and brown Indonesian service workers. One luxury beach club has a comically on-the-nose name, coup d'etat. Over the years, locals have found bones and skulls in the sand around the coup d'etat luxury resort. Yet, the propaganda offensive has been so effective that many on the staff of the hotel do not understand the irony of the beach's name. For the first year of the genocide, Sukarno was still president. He was finally placed under house arrest and stripped of his offices in January of 1967. The violence was overwhelming. The PKI, along with hundreds of thousands of Indonesians, were being systematically slaughtered. Saharto and his military obtained unilateral authority over Indonesia. Saharto immediately banned what was left of the Communist Party and arrested Sukarno's cabinet. Immediately afterwards, the United States opened the economic floodgates and pampered Saharto's regime with aid, loosened economic constraints and restrictions on Indonesia, and, as if at a snap of the fingers, U.S. firms showed up to Indonesia to extract resources. Within days, Freeport Sulphur ventured into West New Guinea and found a mountain full of valuable minerals, which turned out to be the largest gold mine on the planet, the sole property of an American corporation. 
It is important to note that the genocide in Indonesia that claimed the range of 500,000 to 1 million lives was not hidden from the world. Anyone who wanted to know could read descriptions like the following from the New York Times in May of 1966. Quote, Nearly 100 communists or suspected communists were herded into the town's botanical garden and mowed down with a machine gun. The head that had belonged to the school principal, a PKI member, was struck on a pole and paraded among his former pupils, convened in special assembly. Still, the guardians of respectable opinion in the country met the genocide with unmitigated jubilation and praise. U.S. News & World Report carried a long story praising the Indonesian military's actions titled, quote, Indonesia, Hope, Where Once There Was None. Time magazine dedicated 11 pages to a massive story and photo spread covering the coup under the title, Vengeance with a Smile. Time called the genocide, quote, the West's best news for years in Asia and praised the scrupulously constitutional Suharto regime. A month after the New York Times reported on Suharto's goons impaling a school principal's head on a pole and parading it around their students, James Reston wrote an editorial for the paper titled A Gleam of Light in Asia, celebrating developments in Indonesia. It is worth quoting at length. Quote, One of the persistent complaints among officials in Washington is that our political troubles in Vietnam are not balanced by reports in the press of the more hopeful political developments elsewhere in Asia. The savage transformation of Indonesia from a pro-Chinese policy under Sukarno to a defiantly anti-communist policy under General Suharto is the most important of these developments. Washington is being careful not to claim any credit for this change in the sixth most populous and one of the richest nations in the world, but this does not mean that Washington had nothing to do with it. There was a great deal more contact between the anti-communist forces in that country and at least one very high official in Washington before and during the Indonesia massacre than is generally realized. General Saharto's forces, at times severely short of food and munitions, have been getting aid from here through various third countries, and it is doubtful if the coup could ever have even been attempted without the American show of strength in Vietnam or been sustained without the clandestine aid that it has received indirectly from here. Thus, the control of this large and strategic archipelago is no longer in the hands of men fiercely hostile to the United States. The war between Indonesia and Malaysia has ended, and the British forces there will soon be free to help maintain order in this critical area from the Indian Ocean to the Sea of Japan. We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day like you always do till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away in late 1964 president johnson was running for office against the kubrickian freak barry goldwater johnson's advisor bill moyers 
urged Johnson to take a tough stand on Vietnam in order to, quote, defuse a Goldwater bomb before he ever gets a chance to throw it. In August, he got his chance. The U.S. has been deploying Arvin commandos against North Vietnamese coastal targets in an effort to scuttle the Paris peace talks. On August 2nd, two Vietnamese patrol boats fired on an American destroyer and were quickly sunk. The story briefly made the news cycle. On August 4th, sailors on the USS Maddox lit up the night sky, firing blindly into the Tonkin Gulf at some shadows that they saw on their radar. Johnson saw his opportunity to pounce. He told congressional leaders that, quote, some of our boys are floating in the water over there and demanded they pass the Tonkin Gulf resolution, removing all limits on the war. It was an obvious lie, even at the time. Every member of Congress voted for the resolution, but two. Florida Rep. Dante Fascal would later recall, quote, the president needed the authority. Who cared about the facts over the so-called incident that would trigger this authority? So the resolution was just hammered right through by everybody. After the Tonkin Gulf Resolution gave the war an air of legitimacy, the U.S. involvement quickly escalated. In 1965, the number of U.S. forces in Vietnam grew from 16,000 to 200,000. Another 200,000 were added in 1966, and by early 1968, the U.S. occupation topped out at a half a million soldiers in Vietnam. In many ways, the Vietnam War would mimic the key features of the Korean War. Massive violence directed against the civilian population, extreme racism against the Vietnamese people, and a complete disregard for the historical forces behind the Vietnamese resistance to U.S. imperialism. The war from the start was a war against the people of Vietnam itself. Prison camps held 65,000 to 75,000 political prisoners throughout the war. At these camps, according to reports from the International Red Cross, prisoners were regularly beaten and tortured by South Vietnamese and American forces. The Phoenix Program, initiated in 1967, would unleash a reign of mass terror in South Vietnam, killing 20,000 and torturing and disfiguring many more. Regular ground forces also engaged in campaigns of mass executions, the most infamous massacre occurring in the village of My Lai in March of 1968, when 500 civilians, mostly women and children, were rounded up in pits, executed, and buried in mass graves. The fact that these incidents were commonplace was acknowledged in 1971 by Colonel Oren Henderson, the officer charged with covering up the My Lai massacre, when he told the New York Times, quote, Every unit of brigade size has its Milai hidden someplace. A typical mission in Vietnam described by journalist Nick Terse, quote, Marine Corporal Ransbotten came across a large bunker with a group of people, mostly women and children, huddling inside while others clustered at its entrance. Ransbottom's superiors and the advancing engineers were pushing him hard to clear out villagers, and he, in turn, took out his frustrations on the sobbing civilians. He remembered a lot of screaming. The babies were just going nuts. The women, the old men, some were down on their knees like they were praying to Buddha. Then an old man approached. Ransbottom spoke to him in pidgin Vietnamese, which was more likely gibberish. When the man said that he didn't understand, Ransbottom knocked him to the ground. As the elderly villager struggled to get up, he grasped at Ransbottom's leg, 
I took out my right leg and I drove my boot into his exposed left side and I caught him midway up the ribcage, the Marine recalled. A spray of blood erupted from the man's nose and mouth and to which Ransbottom replied with another kick. But this time, I buried my foot as far into his chest as it would go. He collapsed. I assume he was dead. Ransbottom took the body and shoved it into the shelter, telling the engineers, Blow it. I'm tired of the shit. They did. Afterward, Ransbottom peered inside. In his words, it looked like a huge beef pot pie. As in Korea, the violence on the ground paled in comparison to the air war. Seven million tons of explosives were dropped on Vietnam, more than in the European and Pacific theaters of World War II combined. The sadistic nature of the air war was most evident in the strategy of bombing dams and locks. Assistant Secretary of Defense John McNaughton suggested the new tactic in 1966, writing, quote, Destruction of locks and dams might offer promise, such destruction doesn't kill or drown people. By shallow flooding the rice, it leads after a time to widespread starvation. More than a million, a question mark, he wrote in the margin. Unless food is provided. Which we could offer to do at the conference table. In other words, the U.S. hoped to force a surrender on the port of North Vietnam via the forced starvation of the Vietnamese people. By 1964, the air war had also spread into the neighboring country of Laos. The Plain of Jars, a small area in central Laos that is of inestimable historical importance as a site of ancient civilizations, had 75,000 tons of bombs dropped on it between 1964 and 1969. In 1970, the bombings were extended into Cambodia to support a failed invasion of the country. Nixon explained his escalation of the bombings to White House aide Bob Haldeman. In 1971, quote, I call it the madman theory, Bob. I want the North Vietnamese to believe I've reached the point where I might do anything to stop the war. We'll just slip the word to them that for the God's sake, you know, Nixon is obsessed about communists. We can't restrain him when he's angry and he has his hands on the nuclear button and Ho Chi Minh himself will be in Paris in two days begging for peace. As historian Marlon Young notes, quote, It was not the stated policy of the United States to annihilate Cambodia, but by 1973, it was the American practice. The bombing, combined with the U.S. interference in Cambodian politics, gave the growing Khmer Rouge the opportunity it needed to seize power. Historian Ben Kiernan notes, The bombing campaigns, quote, sold a whirlwind in which the CPK Center, Pol Pot's group, was ready to reap. Not only did it harden the base of the movement, but it also prevented what would otherwise have been an inevitable insurgent victory in 1973, at a time when the Center's domestic and foreign policy extremism was far from generally accepted. Marilyn Young describes the consequences. Quote, Bombing had been the sacrosanct absolute of American policy in Cambodia. It should not be surprising, then, that the nightmare Pol Pot made of the final victory of the Khmer Rouge was marked by a balance as absolute, though technologically less sophisticated. After 1975, at the height of the Khmer Rouge's genocidal campaign in the killing fields, the CIA began to quietly back the brutal regime, exacerbating the border conflict any way they could 
the U.S. hoped to start a war between Cambodia and Vietnam, which they got in 1978. To the surprise of the Americans, the Khmer Rouge collapsed overnight in the face of the Vietnamese invasion. In pursuit of normalizing relations with China and exacerbating the Sino-Soviet split, the U.S. began stoking China's growing enmity toward Vietnam. Marilyn Young describes, quote, a beaming Deng Xiaoping arrived in Washington to confirm a new era of Sino-American friendship, a friendship Deng hoped would be sealed by American moral support for the forthcoming Chinese punitive war against Vietnam. Carter overrode the objections of Secretary of State Cyrus Vance and gave Deng and the triumphant National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski what they wanted. China's war against Vietnam lasted just over two weeks, but left tens of thousands dead on each side. Brzezinski, the author of The Grand Chessboard, was satisfied. The invasion revealed some limits to Soviet power by demonstrating that an ally of the Soviet Union could be molested with relative impunity. I also felt that a steadfast U.S. position would convince the Chinese that we were not a paper tiger and that the relationship with us had certain longer-range reciprocal security benefits. While the Vietnamese people were finally able to win their independence from foreign invasion occupation, it came at a very high price. Estimates of the numbers killed in Indochina during the war ranged from 2 million to 4 million. As part of the racism of the war that turned the Asian enemy into nameless sludge, as journalist Ben Anderson puts it, records were not kept of the people killed in Vietnam. Bodies were frequently piled into mass graves, burned, and even dumped into the ocean. Historian Marilyn Young gives a partial accounting of the devastation. Quote, In the South, 9,000 out of 15,000 hamlets, 25 million acres of farmland, 12 million acres of forests were destroyed, and 1.5 million farm animals have been killed. There were an estimated 200,000 prostitutes, 879,000 orphans, 181,000 disabled people, and 1 million widows. All six of the industrial cities in the north have been badly damaged, as were provincial and district towns, and 4,000 out of 5,800 agricultural communes. In 1977, Jimmy Carter tried to put an end to the war for Americans, ghoulishly declaring, quote, The destruction was mutual. We went to Vietnam without any desire to capture territory or impose American will on other people. I don't feel that we ought to apologize or castigate ourselves or to assume the status of culpability. End quote. The war also ravaged the physical environment, leveling cities and villages, with many wiped completely off the map, and turning the countryside in a region that relied almost entirely on agriculture into a barren moonscape of bomb craters. Highly toxic defoliants, unexploded custer bomblets, and landmines continue to kill in Indochina to this day. In Laos, for example, 270 million cluster bomblets were dropped on the country during the war. These bomblets have a failure weight of 30%, meaning that somewhere around 80 million unexploded bomblets litter the countryside. Children mistake them for toys. Farmers run over them with farm equipment. People accidentally step on them. 11,000 people have been killed since 1975 by this unexploded ordinance in Laos. When you consider that the American and South Vietnamese forces also planted at least 1,000 known minefields in Laos, the scope of the devastation becomes apparent. 
the American response to the problem of unexploded ordnance remained combative for decades. When, in 1990, a Pentagon spokesman was asked by why the U.S. refused to provide maps locating minefields in Indochina to mine deactivation teams, the spokesman responded cynically, quote, People should not live in those areas. They know the problem. Well, that uh, is very depressing. Yeah. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Now, this is a long one because it's our big return and because we know you love Vietnam and, Indo- and Indonesia. You love it, don't you? <laughs> uh, don't you feel better after listening to all of that? Hope for the world definitely increases after listening. Now, we definitely, like you, have some thoughts on everything we just discussed. But uh, because I imagine those thoughts are probably going to run a little long, we're going to do it in another episode that'll come out tomorrow. Yeah. What we'd like to leave you with, though, is a provocative uh, excerpt from Vincent Bevan's The Jakarta Method that I think we're going to pick up in the discussion episode, but is worth thinking about. So... Vincent Bevan summarizes his thoughts on what happened in Indonesia thusly. When the world's largest communist party without an army or dictatorial control of the country was massacred, one by one, with no consequences for the murderers, many people around the world drew lessons from this with serious consequences. This was another very difficult question I had to ask my interview subjects, especially the leftists from Southeast Asia and Latin America. When we would get to discussing the old debates between peaceful and armed revolution, between hardline Marxism and democratic socialism, I would ask, who was right? In Guatemala, was it Arbenz or Che who had the right approach? Or in Indonesia, would Mao warn Adit that the PKI should arm themselves and they did not? In Chile, was it the young revolutionaries in the MIR who were right in those college debates or the more disciplined, moderate Chilean Communist Party. Most of the people I spoke with who were politically involved back then believed fervently in a nonviolent approach, in gradual, peaceful, democratic change. They often had no love for the system set up by people like Mao. But they knew that their side had lost the debate, because so many of their friends were dead. They often admitted, without hesitation or pleasure, that the hardliners had been right. Arit's unarmed party didn't survive. Allende's democratic socialism was not allowed, regardless of the detente between the Soviets and Washington. Looking at it this way, the major losers of the 20th centuries were those who believed too sincerely in the existence of a liberal international order, those who trusted too much in democracy, or too much in what the United States said it supported rather than what it really supported, what the rich countries said, rather than what they did. That group was annihilated. The money's not to be on the cows not to be It's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. 
Ávila dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de Stay, stay, stay.